We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello and welcome to The Interruption, the Global Institute for Tomorrow podcast. Recently, Chandran spoke about his time in China during Chinese New Year, and just last week he was in India for one of GIFT's leadership programs. So, Chandran, what did you come across? What ideas do you want to share? Well, the reason I wanted to share this uh, particular uh, uh, ideas uh, from my trip was the, uh, the comparison with, with China. And I think uh, also the oversimplification of uh, the challenges India faces. And, um, you know, with the Indian elections coming up, everyone's talking about uh, the elections and uh, the, the workings of the world's largest democracy. Um, my week in India made me ponder if the elections and the democracy that uh, India is uh, celebrated for will ever change the conditions that I saw uh, during our program. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. So in a nutshell, we went to a, a rural area, uh, which is about uh, two, two and a half hours, hours outside Pune, which is the automotive capital of uh, India. And we worked uh, with, with uh, a very uh, creative organization called the Mandeshi Foundation, which is part of uh, an offshoot of Mandeshi Bank, which is the first women's bank for rural women. And we're looking at some issue to do with farmer producer centers. But what we saw there was essentially, and I'm not a newcomer to India, but what I saw there was shocking in terms of the devastation with regard to harsh climatic conditions. And in some ways, without overstating it, I thought I got a glimpse into what climate uh, refugees and camps would look like because we visited what was called a cattle camp uh, in this part of India. And uh, the conditions there were so stark, it was hard to imagine how a government operating within the confines of India's democratic systems could alter this, particularly given some of the stark statistics, which include something like, and we're told, um, something like 60,000 farmer suicides a year just in one state called Maharashtra. So, you know, it's those things that I don't think make the headlines of uh, the newspapers. Yet, ironically, we were in India last week when India and Pakistan were jostling over occupation of land. Uh, yet, tens of thousands of farmers in India every year commit suicide because the conditions are so bad in terms of uh, the inability for them to sustain a living. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm going to focus in on that, that statistic you put out there, which is you know 60,000 suicides in just one state and you mentioned the government there so what is the link between India's democracy and the level of suicide? Well uh, the, the, the link is not one that I want to try and make a, a very direct mm. uh, argument about but the, the, the issues that one is left to think about is that for instance where we were the absence of the government uh, where, the, where the government was mentioned, it was mentioned more as a hindrance and a bureaucracy rather than uh, a support mechanism. And here again, I don't want to be too harsh on India, but I could not help comparing 
similar sort of work we'd done in rural China three, four, four, five months ago in an arid area of China as well, and why the presence, where the presence of the government was everywhere. They were so interested in our work, and where the farmers looked to the government for leadership, and they put in the hard work. And where the government felt its role was to support the farmers, give them all they could, and then the gov- the farmers were essentially empowered and enabled to do to do work. So to answer your question, um, the ability of the Chinese government to direct resources without any political hindrance of state governments, etc., is the the answer to the type of dilemmas that large countries like India and China faces. And where it's also ability to, uh, it has an ability to direct the best human resources, which is civil service talent, to address pressing issues. In India, we just don't see this. Um, there is no state-directed uh, investments, nor uh, nor assistance in the rural areas, and many of these people are left to themselves. So what we saw in the cattle camp was essentially several thousand farmers uh, whose land had been sort of left to um, uh, kind of. Um, be underutilized because of the bad drought conditions, thus to the effect that they couldn't feed their cattle, etc. And in a Hindu society like India, uh, the worst thing for a, for a farmer is to take the, the cattle to the butcher to, to essentially get a bit of revenue. And apart from the, the religious connotations, there is essentially the more economic consideration, which is essentially cattle is their primary wealth. So rather than kill their, their cattle, uh, they go looking for places to essentially find some f- uh, uh, forage. So the, the foundation, with the help of donations from a couple of companies, has set up a huge, what they call a cattle camp, but it's actually a misnomer because it's the camp is for the people too. So the farmers come with their cattle to save the cattle. Uh, they provide it with sheds, etc., the most flimsy sh- sheds. And then the foundation, uh, essentially through donations and other as, uh, areas of support, but not much of the government, uh, essentially produces, uh, buys fodder for the cattle and provides food for the farmers. Uh, and I think when we were there, there was something like 18,000 cattle in, and uh, over two, 3,000 families uh, in this large area. Uh, what it did uh, also show was how water had been completely mismanaged. Uh, the water table in many areas in that state uh, had been depleted by over 90%. So the absence of any regulatory uh, oversight uh, to manage natural resources. And when you get down to 90% depletion of uh, aquifers, uh, you're in a catastrophic situation. How do you change this? Now, we didn't see any large-scale investments in, in, in agriculture, etc. And I think it, it really begs the question, um, which government for India, what future, and how do the poor in the rural areas um, benefit from the democratic vote they're all about to cast in a few weeks' time? Uh, and, and comparisons with China cannot be avoided. Mm. Do you think then things are reaching a threshold? Things seem pretty desperate from what you said. You used they don't the seem desperate, refugee. they are desperate. They are, they are you would never see something like this in China today. Never. 
And in fact, how many countries in the world would you see something like this, except where it's war-time, you know, there's a catastrophe of sorts. You, you, we do see things like this, of course, in the, uh, the Eastern Horn of Africa, Somalia, where there's been catastrophic drought, warfare, etc. But India is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Uh, India doesn't have war. Uh, India has a burgeoning uh, uh, technology center. It has engineers. It has a functioning government, supposedly. This is not a failed state. But what you look at, you think this is the essence of a failed state for a large country. This is not Somalia, where you could argue the apparatus of the government is essentially in shambles. This is India. This is the Maharashtra state is uh, the state that, uh, you know, where the business capital of India, Mumbai is. This should not be happening in a state uh, which has uh, got some of the most advanced technical expertise in the world. Indians run some of the best banks in the world. Indians run tech companies. And you go back to India and you see this, and you think, how on earth is the government not able to leverage its human capital and its vast resources to address the bill's basic needs? Yeah. So you discuss large countries and why India's government for a large country is not currently functioning the way it should. So what separates a large country's state governance compared to a small one? Well, in a small country, depending uh, small by population, but perhaps uh, large land mass, etc., uh, the scale of suffering is inevitably just smaller. The intensity of suffering for the individual, of course, would be the same. same. But the scale is unprecedented, and so it's compounded. So in a large country, you have resources that have to be shared and managed within a, a dense uh, population uh, matrix. So you have to really manage it very well. When you don't, then the scale is horrendous. So you get the levels of suicide that I just talked about. But if you are in a small country, um, and I can, you know, I'll just mention uh, a small country um, like um, you take a small country, Lao, in, in Southeast Asia. It's a very poor country, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's beginning to develop, etc. But the the, the deprivation and the scale is nothing like India. So while Laos it can be small, its government may not be that advanced. Um, with a bit of aid, which I don't, uh, you know, I'm not promoting, um, you don't get really catastrophic uh, outcomes except when there's war. So you could say Laos uh, suffered its worst periods during the Vietnam War. After that, it sort of moved up out of that dire condition. There is poverty, but it's not on the scale of India, and for such, so you know, if you are to prevent tens of thousands of farmers from uh, committing suicide, that is a situation that can only arise in a very large country like like India, and therefore you need to be so well organised because you need to share limited resources. Laotians would have to share within the the confines of the inability for the state apparatus perhaps to work in a way that everyone can have um, uh, not equal access but reap the benefits. But in India it's very different. You've got limited resources, they have to be shared 
and the consequences of bad management is, are catastrophic. So that's really the difference. I'm not suggesting that small states can afford to have bad governance, but the implications for people uh, coexisting in large countries um, are much more severe. Okay. So when you throw in climate change, you mentioned the phrase climate refugees earlier. How does that fit in with all of this? Well, uh, the, the state of Maharashtra, uh, India is very seasonal, uh, it's, it's, and its agricultural sector is seasonal fed by the monsoons. The monsoons typically come around June, July, and then they, they pass through India. So India is very much dependent on the monsoons. Most people know it. Even the stock market is affected by, by the monsoons. So the monsoons are hopefully due in about two, three months. Uh, but this year, and in fact for several years, the, the inner areas of Maharashtra state have been essentially affected by drought conditions. So rainfall hasn't been as high as before, etc. So for the last three months, it has been very dry. And because groundwater, groundwater levels have been depleted, there's not much water to be even extracted. Farmers essentially don't have enough water. Um, so in, in, in uh, monsoon-fed um, areas of the world, you depend on one or two crops during the monsoon, and then you essentially uh, sell that, save some money, and then you live off your savings so the rains come, etc. You grow some other things in between, uh, depending on your access to mar the, the, the marginal uh, water flows that uh, people depend on during the non-monsoon re re regions, uh, seasons. So um, what we saw here was now an extended drought period, which seems to be getting worse. Some of the predictions uh, that scientists have uh, come up with suggest uh, that the, these will continue to get worse. So what we saw, I thought, was um, a glimpse into how severe these things can, can get and how uh, burnt and dry the land can become. And a state, a nation, state like India can manage this. It's not going to be easy, but it has to be highly organized. It has to have a concerted effort towards managing these constraints with dams, water management systems, technology, alternative livelihoods for people, etc. So as climate change becomes more pronounced and we see droughts becoming much more extreme, uh, conditions on the, the land are becoming a lot more harder. And unless uh, the our livelihoods are somehow um, integrated into a larger economic model in which the state is omnipresent, uh, one can only see these conditions getting worse. And what I saw, and I think what all the participants saw, including the Indians from cities who are part of our group, uh, was a shocking realization of how severe these conditions are. And if the predictions are they're going to get worse, then one can only imagine that many more people are going to suffer from uh, essentially what is broadly, you know, very, very harsh climatic uh, changes in the climate. Mm. So between climate change and the governance of large states, which, which you'd think would be two very separate issues, yet you've brought them together here in this discussion, how or what recommendations would you give voters or even just the Indian government in, for the upcoming elections? How to tackle this? Well, I don't think I can give any, uh, any advice to vo voters because 
you know, India is a democracy. People go out and vote. It's multi-party. Uh, I don't even know if I can give any advice to the Indians, uh, Indian government, other than because they're a multi-party democracy, they exist within a very fractured democratic system. But the thing I'm keen on sharing with everyone is to really understand, and India is a stark example of a very unfortunate reality, that in these very large countries where there are such different climatic conditions, where there's a convergence of resource constraints, etc., there is no substitute to the institutions being extremely well organized and able to essentially protect people and get organized over the long term. Um, and I think, you know, in a previous podcast, I've talked about the fight against climate change it must continue, but it's kind of over. Mm. And now it's about mitigation. And mitigation is not about uh, how rich people will adapt to a few more hurricanes and typhoons and how large cities will, will protect themselves and get smarter. Mitigation also includes food supply systems uh, not, to, uh, not to feed uh, urban populations only, which will be important, but actually feed rural populations. And so for the, the advice uh, or the, the, the wake-up call should be for governments like India but they have a catastrophe looming if you look at some of the water statistics in India. And all effort should be placed towards organizing the states critically around these issues and therefore protecting livelihoods and essentially mitigating the catastrophic type of outcomes which seem always inevitable unless the state intervenes in a very strong way. That, at the moment, seems beyond the, what can I say, the, the vision or the, the organizing principles of the Indian political system. It seems noisy, it seems robust, but it seems completely ineffectual. And one could then see it in the cities where even the building of roads in the in the business capital of India, Mumbai, uh, seems to be left to farm hands, laborers, nothing managed properly, etc., which I think is an indication of a breakdown of a society's ability through the state to organize itself. So from the well in the rural village right through the highways being built in Mumbai, you see that same uh, sort of malice, this inability to manage. There's this huge disconnect then between the very top leadership and even just small leadership in, say, construction of roads like you just mentioned. Now, why then is it that the top government has to be so important? Why can't you just have states that effectively operate well by themselves or within a larger co the constituency of the government but still provide effective leadership? Oh, yeah. I mean, you could certainly have uh, effective leadership at the state level too. Uh, but uh, my wider point, though, is if you have multi-party uh, governments, uh, like you have in India in the state, uh, very rarely does one party have the type of uh, majority mandate that allows them to essentially take on this sort of restructuring of the economy and investments and therefore run roughshod over vested interests. So you could, of course, but then in India you'd have to have I forget how many states there are, but uh, you'd have to have numerous states all operating in sync to do this. Clearly, 
uh, if you have half uh, operating at the sort of level that we're talking about in addressing these issues, that's better than very few. My point, the point I'm making is I think the messy, noisy, democratic system of India does not allow for this. Um, and you have a democracy that is essentially captive to private interests that are so uh, deep-rooted within the corrupt systems, etc., that um, the, the livelihoods of the poorest cannot essentially be handled. And that's why you need a mandate right at the center, which I'll use the word dictates how public money is going to be spent and essentially in the interest of the majority poor in India uh, takes authoritarian, authoritarian actions in the benefit of the, the, the small people. But that doesn't happen in India. Mm. Well, Chandra, that's a controversial line to end on. I think it uh, touches on a completely different podcast that we should we should get stuck into one of these days. But uh, we've touched on climate change. We've start, touched on the state of Indian farmers and the, the tragic realities of how it is to be a farmer in India at the moment. Uh, but unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. So thank you. If you are interested in the work we do at GIFT, please check out our website at www.global-inst.com or check out our Facebook page. Just search for The Interruption by Chandra Naya. Thank you. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program.